Next is Blaise Van Heck, who is a publisher, writer, and um, writing mentor. She she has her own company called Busy Bird Publishing, which looks like that. <laughs> and through that, she runs writing programs and mentorship and workshops and publishing. They have several, uh, quite a good catalogue of published titles already. So, how long have you been running Busy Bird? Oh, 10 years. <laughs> you can tell I'm really used to this. <laughs> yes. So, 10 years, that's yeah. a lot of titles that you've produced then. Yeah, probably about uh, about 350 now. Okay. Mm. Terrific. So, along with us, we have, apart from the book that we're talking about today, Blaze has also published the book book, 12 Steps to Successful Publishing. Mm-hmm. And she's been anthologised in Healthy Spirit. Is that the breast cancer? No, it's a different one. No, that's another yep. one, sorry. <laughs> Health Conscious. And Live Your Truth. In Live Your Truth, I've got a uh, chapter about my walk on the Camino last year. Wonderful. And I will be bringing out a book on the Camino later this year. So, Blaze and I um, actually met, what, 1980 years ago. <laughs> 1982. Yeah. Uh, we discovered each other at boarding school in Melbourne. And, and we've both been trying to forget. <laughs> boarding school, not each other, but boarding school yeah. <laughs> ever since. <laughs> Absolutely. It wasn't Ian and Blyton, was it? No. <laughs> um, so, uh, to talk about the book that we're here for, going backwards, for a woman to end up, as a, for a girl to end up at, as an 11 year old in a boarding school, after having lived through the 70s in a commune, must have been mind-blowing to... Um, it was a bit of a shock to the system because I was used to not wearing any shoes most of the time. I didn't have to brush my hair. I had no clock, like no idea of time or boundaries. In f- we were pretty feral kids, actually. And so then I went to boarding school and I woke every morning to the bell over the loudspeaker, as you would remember. Uh, you know, breakfast at seven, everything very regimented. Mm. Um, but I think I was very adaptable. You did well. I survived. You didn't show. <laughs> <laughs> Six years of it. All right, so going all the way back, um, what took your family to begin with to Trelfamador? And I don't know, does anyone know what Trelfamador is? So, Trel- it's, it's a so I'll, I'll start at the start. Go for it. <laughs> So, it, I was born in 1968. My my mother was already a widow. So, her first husband died in a car accident when she was 20 and her my sister was only a toddler, not even a toddler, I think she was about six months old. So, um, with the insurance money, my mum bought a house in Carlton and she met my dad and had me. My dad hung around with a bad crowd so she left with my sister and I and we w- went on a boat to Europe. Well we went to London first and then we ended up in Belgium where she met my stepfather which is where the the Van Heck surname comes from. She married my um, stepfather, had a bro- an- another son, my one of my brothers. We came back to Australia, all of us and she had another son and we lived in Cockatoo. Does anyone know Cockatoo here out in the Dandenongs? Uh, and then 
he went on his own walkabout, my stepfather, to the East Coast where there were a lot of artists and people like that. And then my mum followed. So we were all living... Your stepfather was an artist. Yes, he was a painter. Yep. So we were all living uh, in Bermagui on the coast. Anyone who's a fisherman, actually, this is a fishing village. If anyone who's fishing, you'll know Bermagui because it's meant to be the mecca for fishing. And um, we were all there. And then my stepfather decided he didn't like Australia anymore. He went home and left all of us here. <laughs> so, you know, in the 70s, it wasn't so easy to be a single mother. Uh, so she joined with this group of people who had started a, um, a well, it wasn't a commune, it was sort of like a shared land. Was it a random chance that she met Jill? That I think so. Introduced yeah, her yeah. yeah, just people, you know, people in that area were talking to each other and <clears throat> obviously we got around that there was this, in fact, we, we lived in a house that someone had said we could live in as long as we wanted to. But all the locals thought it was very obscene that a single woman was living there with kids and we had no electricity and um, just lived a bit wild, I think. <laughs> what would the neighbours think? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Troll Famidor is um, actually the home planet to an alien race in Kurt Vonnegut's novels. Hmm. And yes. a Trophelmadorian is someone who can move through time and space yep. and prefers to exist in happy places. Yes. <laughs> so the idea was that this land was meant to – their, their intention was to build a utopian life. Mm. Uh, that's good in theory. <laughs> you know, communes actually are really good in, in theory. but not. Does so it all fall down when someone needs to clean the toilet? Yes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So um, it was named Trophamidor after the, the book because the book came out in, I think, in 1969, around that time. And um, so, yeah, we, we became Trophamidorians. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did try and research this property, but I could find nothing That's good. that mentioned Trophamidor <laughs> in itself. But it did come up with other hippie communes yeah. if you type in Trophamidor. So. Yeah. That's um, interesting. But with your <laughs> with your book, you you've actually succeeded. I think you've graduated as a Trophelmadorian. Yes, if I can say it correctly, <laughs> because you've managed to um, transport yourself through time. And th this sounds like young Blaze. Mm. Uh, did you mean to get that childhood voice? All I was the way hoping. Through? Yeah. Well, you certainly. <laughs> it's actually that. really hard to do. It is. I rewrote it so many times. Yeah. There's a um. You even have the child's perspective. There's a character. A suspicious character who hangs around the commune who's from the nearby village. Mm -hmm. His name's Super. Yep. Um, and you've actually got... Sorry, I, I thought I had it marked. You had him... Let's see if I can find the page. Um, Super was the only person from town to ever come into Trafalmador. One time we saw him at the Cabago pub with a beer, standing around having a yarn with his townie mates. Every time Super came to town, came to their commune, he was on a horse. We had to look hard to make sure it was him because we only ever saw him on his horse and he seemed like he was a giant. But at the pub, he was about the same height as Mama, which meant he was more like a hobbit than a man. My mum's five foot two. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a ter terrific um, childhood perspective. Yeah. And pretty much, you know, these days, uh, well... Kids aren't watching TV so much, actually. They're watching YouTube. Mm -hmm. But 
um, kids of my generation watch TV. So, you know, a lot of, or even my own kids, you know, they watch The Simpsons and those sorts of shows. So a lot of the things that they relate to are th- through, you know, whatever the culture was happening. So a lot of the stuff that I related to was in books like mm. The Hobbit, Enid Blyton. So when I went to boarding school, I thought it was all going to be like eight, out of, straight out of Enid Blyton. <laughs> the other book that has a very, very, um, that could be the foundation stone of this entire book, I felt, was Watership Down. Yes. Is Watership Down one of your favourite And do you know what I was listening to that in the car today? (laughs) So Watership Down is probably, I think, the the story that made me fall in love with story, Mm. if you like. Um, I used to listen to it on the radio because we did have a radio out there. And so, and it was serialized about mid seventies. So uh, every week I would try and, except I never knew what day it was. <laughs> so it was really hard to know whether I'd missed an episode or not. Yeah. But um, yeah, I really fell in love with Fiverr, particularly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, we all love Fiverr. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I, it's one of those books I revisit. And that book is about natural landscape and beauty, and you have a lot of that in yeah. this book. You've got a strong connection with the river. That your village sat on. Mm-hmm. Um, I've forgotten the river's name. What Billiga? Yeah. Okay. There yes. You go. <laughs> That's why I forgot it. Yeah. Um, that river became a part of you, um, and it sounds like you still need that river. Yes. Uh, there's a line somewhere that I found about the river. Keep talking while I find okay. it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so. This property is still, we still visit it. So when um, I was little with my brothers, my sister's a bit older, so she actually went off to boarding school um, while we were still living on the property. And um, we would help my mum build the house. But, you know, my youngest brother was about four. So four, six and eight. So we would try and bring rocks up from the river for my mum, but they'd only be like this big. (laughs) So they weren't much good to her. But the house is still standing. And she built that from scratch. We built it. We, you yep. actually chose the All trees. All from stuff around the, off the property. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or from the tip. We would find, you know, old windows at the tip or um, there's a Volkswagen door. The whole door is actually set into the wall and <laughs> we would actually get the winder and wind the window down. Still there, except the winder doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So how many people would have been involved in building that house in the beginning? So we had a uh, – any time anyone wanted to build a house, we would have a working party, if you like. And it would – so it would be a day where everyone would, um, you know, dig holes for the uprights or put the roof on. And there might be 30 people, 20 to 30 people working on it. And then after a day of that, we'd all sit around the bonfire and um, eat food and – Drink homemade wine and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> stuff like <laughs> as, that. As well as other things. It was the 70s. <laughs> Hippie commune? Yes. yes. So there, there's a passage here that uh, reads, The river always talked to me. Her voice was very slow, enchanting and swelled around me. I couldn't escape her. She told me stories about the bush, old stories that I didn't understand. But mostly she told me how good and perfect I am, about the adventures that I'll have, how everything will be okay. She answered questions I hadn't asked and my heart filled up and up as if the water was flowing into me. The river told me that I was her child and I will never need more than I have right now and that she will look after me. That's a beautiful passage about a river. I still feel that. Hmm. Yeah. 
is a you know how there's some places that take you back to to happy times <laughs> uh, there's this particular spot on the river that I always visit when I go up there and I go up there at least once a year you didn't ever want to move there it's a bit remote <laughs> how many yeah. rivers to cross it's, does it take there's to get to five <laughs> river there's five well they're creeks five creek crossings you have to have a four-wheel drive and it's an hour's drive to the nearest town so it's too it's very remote <laughs> internet so a good you, veggie garden was essential yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and when it flooded, you were stuck there. I don't remember. Did you have many animals? We had the dog, which the is dog. on the front cover. Cloud. I, I meant more sort of um, uh, we had, edible uh, animals. We had. We didn't eat. We no. were vegetarian. vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had. Well, we had um, chickens. Elvis. Elvis. Yeah, Elvis the pig. <laughs> but that was was someone else's house. <laughs> there was a big uh, pig called Elvis, and we were told very early on that he was going to be smoked. Um, but you know, you know, I don't, pig, pigs are huge. You know, it was like, or for a kid anyway, it was huge <laughs> and with very coarse hair. And so we thought he would just taste really disgusting. <laughs> and he did disappear one day. Apparently, he went to the smokehouse, but we didn't really. Uh, the kids were always off. We didn't care what the adults were doing. We we're always running off in the bush and doing our own thing. So um, early on, your mum went. To India, she took a trip to India mm -hmm. and discovered the Bhagwan, mm -hmm. uh, as, as Australian near him. <laughs> uh, do you want to say a bit about that? Yeah, well, actually, um, my mum, my mum is one of these people. She's very eccentric. Oh, this is going to be live, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know if she'll listen to this, but that's okay. Um, and actually, she'd like it. Um, <laughs> she is an artist. She's a writer. She's a painter, and uh, she was one of the first people in the seventies to go and find a guru so she actually did go to a guru but it wasn't him it was wasn't um, Bhagwan it was a different one his name was Nitya um, and then so she went off for three months and the kids stayed with various people on the land and then maybe a year or so later someone turned up at the commune dressed in orange with the lanyard with the picture of um, uh, Bhagwan who's now called Osho He's not alive anymore, but his, his actual ashram still lives on. Mm. So gradually lots of people around the land started following um, Osho and wearing orange, changing their names, going over to India to visit the ashram. And so all of this stuff was coming back to us at, at the property. You know, we started eating lentils and japati and hummus and learning kundalini yoga and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, they all sound like positive additions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that was kind of the reason why I think the, the commune didn't stay together because people had to, in order for people to afford to go to India, they had to go to Canberra or Sydney or Melbourne to earn money for their airfares and they would hand over decent amounts of money, I think, to the ashram as well. Mm. Yeah. So uh, when you left, um, it was all still thriving yep. at that point? Yeah. Yep. So do you know how long it continued on? Uh, into the early 80s. Okay. Yeah. Maybe, maybe even up to 85. Right. Yep. And you talk about a um, potential schoolhouse that yes. was being built <laughs> and it seemed to remain a potential schoolhouse. Yeah. <laughs> there were big ambitions. There was. So we were homeschooled for, well... Very loosely, I, I guess you could say we were homeschooled. We did get packet, you know, packages at the post office 
from the New South Wales Education Department. <laughs> uh, I think we would open it, quickly look at it and then do our own thing because we were encouraged, my mum did encourage us to read and write. We read a lot, we did a lot of things. We did a lot of creative things, a lot of reading. I always had my nose in a book. And in fact, because there weren't many books, I just started reading any any book I could find. So most, most of the adult books as well. Um, but, you know, as as more people came and there were lots of kids by, you know, by the sort of mid to late 70s and, and, you know, we were all growing. We weren't little toddlers anymore. And so, you know, there were always these sort of meetings where they decided, okay, we should we should develop a school and all the adults have various skills so they can teach various things. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of excitement. We cleared some land for a schoolhouse, had a working party, then sat around the, the bonfire afterwards, <laughs> just like it, every other property. There was nine dwellings over the 500, it's 500 acres. Um, and so the uprights went up to the school, the roof went on to the school, and I was very excited. I don't know about the other kids, but I was one of the older ones. So I was really... You, you had a fantasy of sitting at the desk? And yeah, yeah. Oh, I think I watched too much Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> <laughs> when I, whenever we went to, came to Melbourne, I'd watch Little House on the Prairie and thought, oh, yeah, I like the idea of the school. And sometimes when we came to Melbourne, we would actually go to school for a couple of months. And How did that go? It was Okay. It, it, the weird thing was we'd go there and we'd come home one day and mum would just say we're leaving again. So it was a, it was never – we never really knew where we were going to be next week kind of thing. Like you say, a, a stories from a gypsy childhood. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and you know, it's a funny thing. When I put the word gypsy, when I put the cover up on Facebook, because, you know, you're meant to tell everyone about it when you, when you bring out a book, so many people had an issue with the word gypsy. They said it was a derogatory term. Mm. Um, but I see it as just a lifestyle, not actually as being a gypsy. Mm. And it, it, uh, to me, it totally fitted what our life was like. So uh, you've had a fairly stable life as an adult. Yes. <laughs> you stayed at the same address for a long time. Yes. Is this intentional? Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all of my siblings have very long-term relationships I've been with Kev for my husband for 33 years. My sister's 25 plus. My brother's up around 25 years. Uh, another brother who lives in Tokyo, he's been with his wife for about 10 years. So we have very have very stable lives. So I'm guessing that's just a subconscious thing. <laughs> You've rebelled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. You say somewhere, uh, I was born sunny side up. Yep. And I suspect that you'd need to be to deal with all the change that you've had in your childhood. Uh, yes and no. I think any any adversity that you have in your childhood, whether it be, you know, I mean, obviously there's, there are things, I mean, there are stories in there that some people will go, oh, did that really happen to you? But to me, I don't know if it's my personality or just a bit of luck or that I listen to my intuition because, mm. you know, kids have intuition but they don't always, they're not taught how to listen to it. Um, so I feel like I might have had some brushes with some mm. shadows in my life but nothing ever really traumatic happened to me. Um, it could be a bit of my personality. I, I, don't, I don't really know. Mm. <laughs> 
there's a few places, uh, actually quite a lot of this book actually asks, raises a lot, a lot of questions rather than provides answers for. So I would suspect that you've withheld quite a bit of mm. uh, yep. stuff from these, yes. <laughs> these pages. <laughs> Is there yes. a second book one day? I chose so the the time that this covers is from uh, about the age of six or seven to eleven. So it's actually not a very long period of time uh, until I go to boarding school. And a lot of people, um, a lot of the feedback has been that they wanted more. They want more stories, or they want you know more details, um, which I could have done. Some things I may have censored. <laughs> Because, you know, your stories always involve other people. Mm. That's one thing. Um, but also I wanted that feeling of magic a little bit because I, I really felt like my childhood was magic. Mm. Um, I, don't, I can't speak for my other siblings. I noticed that you don't speak for your other siblings no. much. <laughs> your little brother, Cuzzy, gets quite a good mention yes. throughout the book. Yeah. <laughs> but no one else seems to star too much. No. Now, he was always, uh, anyone he got a younger brother, they always <laughs> got away with everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I forgot where I was going. Um, Not telling oh, other people's of, Yeah, in terms of, um, the other thing is, when you're seven you, and you're an adult, you can't remember everything that happened. You know, in fact, I know, I know and I, sometimes purposely did it. I've melded some stories together because otherwise they're just little tiny, tiny vignettes and you can't make a story out of it. Mm. So to a certain degree, I wanted sort of that feeling of uh, that childlike wonder. I wanted it to be from, I tried, I don't know if it comes across, but I tried as, as the stories go through because they're chronological, I wanted to give a feeling of how old I was in mm. the stories. Mm. Um and it's really hard not to bring the adult you into the story when you're writing it. Yeah, well, I think you've yeah. successfully done that. Um, and it, it's a uh, – you've got first impressions with a lot of things um, and you talk about the things that you used to do, collecting candle stubs and um, all sorts of things. They're, they're kind of little things but they add up and with it all it, it gives the impression of a childhood. Yeah. A childhood well spent, in mm. fact. <laughs> yeah, and well, back actually back to the the schoolhouse thing. Uh, you know, I was very excited about the school being built, and I would walk past it because you know it would be on the way to other people's houses, and we walk past, and it was always these four uprights with the corrugated iron roof, and I would imagine myself there with the blackboard up the front. I'd be <laughs> I was a real nerd at school when I did finally go to school. Uh, I just was hungry for more. You know, langu you know, I, I was learning lots of things in the bush, but I wanted more. I wanted to more books and more any anything that I could get. I was really hungry for it, um, and it just it never progressed. People just started going off to India, and uh, mm. then someone moved into it and made it their house. Mm. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, obviously the school. no school's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> do Do you think it um, built your confidence to a in terms of just being able to do things like you were given a lot of independence yeah. there's a passage there's a section in there where you go to peter pumpkin eaters yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> i think you go there by yourself yeah. and you've traveled quite a way 
um, yeah. just to go and visit him yeah. and you're quite terrified and you get the mm. sense of that terror mm. but then you get there and you're confident. Yeah. You're so happy that you've made yeah. it and it, it must have been confidence boosting. Possibly. I, I think once I got to um, high school and I was a boarder, um, strangely, even though I was um, exposed to so much, you know, there was a lot of drinking and, and you know, smoking marijuana and a lot of sex. Oh, a, I saw a lot of sex. boarding school? Uh, no, no, when I was a kid. <laughs> well, there may have been, but Which I didn't boarding notice. school did you go to? <laughs> I didn't know about any of that, but anyway. Um, so even though I was um, probably exposed to a lot of thing, a lot of things that kids that age weren't, when I when I was back in the real world, if you like, I was really naive, surprisingly naive, um, and I and I think very trusting of people, and so very easily um, led, <laughs> and uh, very easy to um, to bully. I was bullied a great deal because uh, I was the weird hippie kid. I had buck. I have, still have buck teeth, but they're a little bit better than when I was twelve. Um, you know, I was kind of like the weird kid. And uh, being at boarding school, you know, it was the Methodist Ladies College, um, and so my mum would rock up in her battered old four wheel drive, um, and I would have clothes from the op shop which I never thought anything about. But when you're in a boarding school where girls are coming from, you know, they're from very wealthy families and they have their, you know, designer stuff, you feel like the odd one out. Yeah. So So Blaze and I met at this particular (laughs) boarding school and I had a similar experience in that our family scraped to get us to boarding school. Um, So I was there in my target clothes and my... Yep. The fellow students were all in the Laura Ashleys or yeah. Country Road. Yeah. <laughs> expensive brands. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're another step along with the op shop clothing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't know if anyone... I didn't here. notice for the record. Did you? <laughs> well, you know, see these sandals. We had very similar school shoes like this, but they were closed at the front. They were the trendy things to have. And I had Kmart ones, like... Um, synthetic material, really (laughs) horrible black ones. And I really wanted a pair of these sandals and I saw a pair one day at the op shop that fitted me and they were like a dollar. So I bought them and someone in the boarding school noticed them but could tell that they weren't new, you know, and, you know, said something about it. I didn't really care that much but, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So when, you know, I I think I learned to try and just – Go under the radar. Hmm. Yeah. We were talking earlier today about your memory and how your memory is very good, <laughs> and and or or it emphasises how bad my memory is. But Blaze actually talks about her first day at boarding school, and she remembers it very very clearly. <laughs> and she brought back several um, uh, things that I could have done without remembering. Maybe you just black them out. Yeah. <laughs> courage, courage, shrimp, volleyballs. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know this is the thing about being a writer is that you're um, you're you're a people watcher and you observe life. So it's like you're quietly watching. So you've got to watch out for writers because they're watching everything you say and do and storing it away, mm. and they're going to write about it. <laughs> um, so what what prompted you to write this to start with? Did you feel that you wanted to revisit, or did you feel no, that this I, should be told? I just started writing short stories, but fictionalized 
you know, and like a lot of writing, we have a lot of our own memoir in it. And um, so the very uh, first short story I ever wrote is one of the stories in there, but I wrote it as if it didn't actually happen, <laughs> but it was all true. Um, with some, Can you say which story? Uh, it's called The Eleventh Summer. Yep. And um, I just kept adding, I guess I just kept adding to it and then I thought, oh, maybe this could be you know, a collection of stories because they are self-contained. They're more like vignettes actually, they're, but they're self-contained. But as a whole, they, they actually are chronological and they add up to a whole story. Mm. Yeah. Maybe I could read some. Yeah. Yeah? Can I grab it? <laughs> Were there other memoirs that you um, found along this line? Um, not really. I tried to be a little bit experimental. In fact, an earlier version was even more experimental and I had someone do an assessment for it. You can get um, editors to read your work and give you a report. Um, and Was that through Writers Victoria? Uh, no, just someone I knew. Okay. Um, uh, actually, Inga Simpson, I don't know if you've heard. Have you read Mr Wig? If anyone has not read Mr Wig by Inga Simpson, I highly recommend it. It's actually got cricket as a backdrop and I actually hate cricket. But it's absolutely a beautiful story um, and I was quite emotional by the end of it. Okay. Um, maybe I'll read a little bit. Uh, we also had – I've got a photo in here of a bathtub. We used to um, uh, have the fire down the bath on the, the, the riverbank and we'd put a fire under it to warm the water up. <laughs> It's actually a lot of fun. We still do it. So you still have that property? Yes. Yeah. Yep. So it's 500 acres and it's nestled up uh, against the Wadbillager National Park. And everyone says, oh, where is it? And I say, well, I can tell you, but there's no way you can get to it because it's, uh, you know, there's locked gates and it's, um, you know, an hour in, inland in through the bush. And people get quite freaked out going out there because it's very remote and uh, there's lots of snakes, so I'm trying to put people off because <laughs> it is a, a very special secret for us. Um, what shall I read? Did any of them stand out for you? All of them. That's a hard question. <laughs> I will read. Okay. This one is called, this is a true story, okay? People don't believe this when I tell them, but it actually did happen. How are we going for time? Is anyone getting bored yet? <laughs> <laughs> Even though Alan had been here longer than us, he'd only now picked a spot for his house. He also lived at Bermagui, so maybe he wasn't in a hurry to build a house. It was very close to the edge of the river. Too close, said Mama, and we agreed. It was the closest house to us and we could get there out along the saddle and then by following the river upstream. So there was this ridge behind our house that we called the saddle. We'd leave our place, pass the tall spotty gum tree behind the house, walk along the saddle single file and pass an old mangy wombat on the way. He'd be bumping into things in the daylight when he should have been in his burrow sleeping. There were lots of wombat holes along this track and I wondered if this was where wind in the willows came from, or at least the idea of it. Old mangy wombat reminded me of the blind mole. 
The good thing about Alan's spot was that it was flat and easy to get to from the road. Everyone approved of this when the working party put in the uprights for the roof. The road was awash with moonlight when we finished a day of work. The moon was so bright that we could walk along the road without a lantern. Richard, he was new to Tralfamador, ducked and weaved along the road, talking loudly about everything in his funny English accent. He told jokes and we tumbled along the road full of laughter and silliness. A lot of the time we couldn't understand what he said, but we laughed anyway. When we got home, we sat around the fire sharing stories. The moon followed us everywhere. I couldn't wear shoes because I had a giant wart on the end of my big toe. It didn't matter really because we didn't wear shoes much, but I couldn't stop rubbing it. Want to sell me your wart? asked Alan. He smelled of beer and his eyes were always red and watery, like he'd been standing in front of the fire too much and had gotten smoke in them. There were tiny red lines like little rivers inside the whites of his eyes. When he got close to me, my skin felt prickly and I checked to see if I had ants running up and down my arms. His nose was red too and I tried to move away from him without him noticing. I can only do it by the full moon, he said, waving at the sky. I stared at the moon to see if it agreed with him, but it just threw silvery beams at me. I wanted him to stop talking to me, so I agreed. He paid me five cents. I wasn't sure what I'd do with five cents, since I didn't know when we were going into town again, but I put it in my pocket and wondered how many mixed lollies it would buy at the top shop in Cabago. Alan kissed the coin and rubbed it over the wart and mumbled something. The wart on my big toe throbbed under the light of the shimmering moon and Alan looked happy with himself. The next morning, the wart was gone. I picked at my toe and searched everywhere for it. Where is it? I asked Alan. It's mine now and you can't have it back, he said. His eyes were squinty. I wanted him to prove that he had the wart. I could tell he knew where it was. It's mine, all right. It's somewhere on my body that I can't show you, he said, and his eyes narrowed and he squeezed his lips together while I thought about it. He pretended to look at some trees in the distance and rubbed his belly like he was full from breakfast. I didn't ask any more questions and ran off to the river. <laughs> Tell us more about Alan. <laughs> well, luckily Alan's not around anymore. <laughs> um, you know how there's always an uncle in the family that's a little bit creepy. <laughs> Actually, I had a few. Yeah, he was, well, he wasn't even an uncle, but he was just someone in, in the family circle that you kind of just instinctively knew to stay clear of. I don't know if he was bad or anything, but he just, yeah, it made my skin crawl. <laughs> Re reading that um, chapter was an interesting experience. I didn't know what to make of Alan, so... Mm. 
I was curious that you chose that one. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of situations like that where things could have gone really awry um, that seem almost on the brink of going awry, but yep. you either finish the chapter suddenly or things don't turn out so bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I was talking about before in terms of um, just, you know, using your intuition mm. and um, – whether that was just something, I mean, my mum did teach me that. Um, but, you know, there's there's sort of this idea that we have to be helicopter parents to look after our children. Mm. Um, but we were the opposite. We had no boundaries whatsoever. Um, my mum was fairly strict. We had to behave. We had to be seen and not heard. But most of the time, like, you know, at, when we went to people's houses or when we went out to town or what have you, but most of the time... We would be, you know, out the door as soon as we had breakfast and she'd have to call us back to eat. Was there ever a character that you were told or warned about to uh, stay no, clear of? Or? No, there was an older uncle, my mum's uncle, who really was creepy. <laughs> you really didn't go anywhere near him. Um, but no, no not He wasn't on the commune? No, no. <laughs> he was in Melbourne. Okay. So there was nobody that you needed to stay clear of no. in, in a commune? Well, no. But, you know, think interestingly enough, so there is a story in there where uh, an older man tried to kiss me. Mm. And since I wrote that story, um, my sister told me about this same person uh, kissing her at the same age, which was 11, and um, she liked it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, he was a creep. <laughs> but everyone's different, aren't they? <laughs> and where's he now? <laughs> oh, I think he's long gone. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions for Blaze? Feel free. I'm not saying that we're finished, but um, you can fill in while I think about things. <laughs> there were nine houses, if you like. Um, there were kind of different. One house had a lot of sort of young people, you know, early 20s. And, it, and it's really interesting now that I because I still keep in touch with quite a few, and they're actually not much older than me. So when we were there, they were 19 and 20. Um, so there was one house that was sort of like a share house, if you like, with a whole lot of um, people that age. And then there would be other couples with, you know, two or three kids. So there was nine dwellings altogether. So about 30 people all up. Yeah. Did anyone else have – anyone else – yeah, got one up the back there. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I go back every year for a holiday. I, I did think about living up there when I was in my 20s, but no one lives there full time. Um, there are uh, – our house still stands. You could live in our house. I mean, it's really um, a shack. You know, there's no – no. we didn't have any electricity or running water. Um, and actually, the the land is not great for growing. It's quite quite a harsh landscape to try and grow things. But um, there is a woman who's now eighty five, and she has been living there for about thirty years. Um, but she's just gone and had her knees um, <laughs> knees done or her hips done or something. So I don't know if she'll be going back. But yeah, it, it is quite hard to be out there because. Um, I think when you're not around people, you can tend to go a little bit crazy. 
So when you were dropped into boarding school from 11, that was the end of Trafalmador for you as a child? Pretty much, yeah. We would go was back every summer okay. for, you know, a month or so. Was that heartbreaking for you? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it was. And there was one time when I was about 16 or seven, 17, I would have been when my we were up there for the summer and my sister was pregnant and she went into labour early. So we rushed back to Melbourne and I was very upset with her. <laughs> Because we had to leave. <laughs> yeah. You know how there – it's one of those places when I go there that I just feel like I'm home and I sleep like a baby when I'm up there. Yeah. It's a very special place. And you've taken your current family there, obviously. Yep. One, one of my sons loves it, the other doesn't. <laughs> Um, and this book is a family effort, in fact, isn't it? You've got yes, my youngest did the little sketches in there. Yeah, that's yeah. wonderful. They're yeah. gorgeous little sketches. Yeah, you can see little yeah. chickens and things. <laughs> and when I asked him, he was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." But then when I was getting the whip out because I wanted to get the book published, he was like, "Mom, you can't, you can't demand, you know, an artist to move quickly." <laughs> um, you're on your way to Adelaide. I am. Uh, for the Writers' Festival, aren't you? I am, yes. So, um, has anyone here been to Writers' Week? In, yeah, it's awesome. All the free events. Um, it's always so hot there, though. I think it's going to be 42 degrees or something on the weekend. But yeah. So, I'm going I'm going to be at the Findon Library to talk about publishing and then I'm going to go and look at as much as I can of the festival. So, what's next for Blazer's writing? Okay, so... Last year, I um, I turned fifty, and to celebrate turning, so did I. Happy birthday! <laughs> Happy birthday! <laughs> what a surprise! We're the same age. Um, uh, instead of having a big party, I well, I did have a um, Mad Hatter's tea party, hence why I like this chair. Um, I I wanted to celebrate and give gratitude in a way for being making it to fifty. Not everyone gets to make it to fifty. Um, but I had been for about 15 years wanting to walk the Camino in Spain. Anyone here know about the Camino? So for those who don't, it's a pilgrim walk across the top of Spain and it's 800 kilometres. So it starts in the Alps in the south of France, goes up over the Pyrenees, right across the top of um, Spain to Santiago. And traditionally, it was a, a religious walk because it's the way of St. James. So, St. James the Apostle's body is apparently interred at Santiago and his body was carried right across along that trail. So, I uh, did that last April and I walked for 42 days um, from south of France to Santiago. And so, hopefully, in May, I'll bring out a book about that. Have you read Ailsa Piper's book about Yes, it's awesome. Yes. And I wanted to see her because she was at uh, the right around the Murray Festival last year. But for some, I can't remember why I couldn't make it. She's actually presented here, hasn't she? Has she? Yeah, she, oh, she did cool. a wonderful, uh, she's got a reenactment that she does. Oh, cool. Performs, which is amazing. Yeah. She's a serious hiker. She's done a few of those big walks. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's my next. So will that be a similar sort of vignette style? It's more like a travel diary. Yep. So I walked um, with my backpack. So I carried everything for the whole journey. 
on my own. And that's what I wanted to do on my own because I've been with my husband for such a long time. I've never actually done anything like that on my own. It was the best thing I've ever done. Ever done. It was awesome. So you recommend it to everyone? Yeah. <laughs> and people go, oh, people come up to me and go, oh, I'm too old for that now. And I said, well, someone turned 82 while I was walking and he started the same day as me and finished the same day as me. And he had his backpack. And I believe Graham Simpson has recently done that as well. Uh, did he walk the whole thing? <laughs> I don't think so. Do you know? No. <laughs> Maybe not. It's not. It actually isn't that hard. It's just long. It's, you know, you have to try and take out six or seven weeks of your life and that's not easy for everybody. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, as I said, the theory of communal living is actually really good. Um, but I guess it's hard to find people with the same idea of how it's going to run. Um, what I'm finding from – because I work with a lot of people who are writing – and um, obviously I'm, I'm around books a lot, so I hear lots of stories. And what I'm finding is in terms of what people are wanting is that sense of connection. We seem to be, you know, we have supposedly so more connected now because we have, you know, the internet. <laughs> um, people don't have to leave their house. And so they especially people in their 20s, they don't quite know how to talk to each other. And so there seems to be this this um, overwhelming feeling for people or need for people to actually have real connections. And so I think um, that kind of living uh, – or maybe it's um, also a little bit of we're, we're becoming such a throwaway society and people are looking for something more real. I'm thinking, yeah. But in terms of advice, I just think uh, you have to go into it with the right intention because there's a lot of compromise involved in terms of living, uh, you know, we've been in boarding school. That's fun to live with a 100 other people. Um, but I think that's something that's lacking too in, in Australia and a lot of, uh, you know, the UK and maybe the US, not so much in European countries. But, you know, in European countries... They're used to having the, the older family members living with them and things like that. We don't do that so much in Australia, which I think is a great shame because we're not, A, looking after our families, but we're also not learning the generation, you know, the generations aren't learning from each other and things like that. Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> do you have something from your time in the commune that you still use or practice today? Like uh, well, yeah, yoga is a big thing. I um, I do yoga daily, just you know, in my at home. Um, meditation definitely. Um, I don't think I could survive the modern world actually without those things. But also, um, I I I'm not a wasteful person. I am into. Um, reclaiming things, if you like, if I see anything on the edge of the road. You're still wearing your Opshop clothes? Yeah. Well, not, no, not today, <laughs> but I do. Oh, I love the Opshop. Um, uh, 
I love finding things on the curb and um, finding a new life for them or, uh, you know, I compost everything and I recycle everything and, uh, you know, I don't like to waste things. So, um, I like to think that I'm helping in some small way to preserve the planet, hopefully. <laughs> and through publishing, you're letting other people find their voices as well. Yes, um, yeah. I think it's... That's obviously something you're passionate about. Yeah, big time. I, I, the story that, and the things that I learn from people too, from their stories, because people come to me with absolutely amazing stories and, and some really traumatic things happen to people that... Um, people don't even realise, yeah. And by writing people's story, like by writing your own story, it's a it's a thought, um, it's a way of actually working through it. It's a way of actually, it's like a therapy in a way. Yeah, quite cathartic. <laughs> so, if anyone um, here is anyone here a writer? Well, I know one writer. <laughs> anyone else writing? There's a writer who's not putting her hand up. I'm looking at you, Gunga. <laughs> <laughs> um, but even even if you're not a writer, um, just keeping a journal is actually um, it's really good for your well-being. Um, I don't know if you do that, but um, it can really help you through some tough tough times. Yeah. Right after reading your book, I went on to read, um, and I'm just finishing it now, so I haven't completely finished it. Um, educated. Tara Westover's book about being raised by a, a, a what do you call them? Survival. Uh, sorry? Yeah, no, 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 no. Uh, radical survivalist Mormons. So they were radical Mormons. Um, so they were even radical to the Mormon community. So it was just one family out by themselves in isolation, and the kids were all homeschooled loosely. Um, uh, and where was I going with this? Oh, Tara Westover, who wrote this book, uh, she journaled all the way through her life, and um, those journals were her uh, salvation, her her relief, I think, from everything she was going through. But there was one point in the book which is highly disturbing, and that's the point where she can't write. So it was really interesting. Mm. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, we were talking about um, helping people with, you know, with a voice. I think that's where books are very powerful because um, for some, in, in actual fact, I'm, I'm working, well, I've recently read someone's uh, memoir um, and most of their memoir is about their life hiding behind a mask, a lifetime of depression and anxiety and um, you know taking drugs and drinking alcohol to hide to hide behind it and he kept a journal his whole life he said he's just got stacks and stacks of journals and he's written his memoir which is um, beautiful and now he's actually doing the opposite what is what he has spent his whole life doing so now he's actually bearing everything to people and um, talking about um meditation and things like that which actually have been his saviour yeah so the journal part to that he said the journaling was really what kept him sane so that book's coming out through busy bird uh no i think he's gonna i'm encouraging him to try the big publishers yeah 
much when, as I when, would like to. But I was about to say, <laughs> when, when does Busy Bird become the big publisher? <laughs> uh, when someone gives me some money. <laughs> <laughs> when you make a load of money off yeah. a particular book. Yeah, yeah. maybe. <laughs> it's not a lot of money in publishing. No. no. P- anyone who's in publishing does it because they love it. Same as book selling? Sorry? Maybe the same as book selling? The same as book selling, <laughs> I'd say so, yeah. Yep. Any other questions from Hannah? Yeah, I don't actually know. Um, possibly my mum was keeping track of time or, or maybe – because we would tune into the radio every now and again. Um, for instance, we did know when the eclipse was – in 1977 there was a total eclipse of the sun uh, and um, we did know when that was happening and we were all told we weren't allowed to look of it, look at it. So, of course, we all stood there looking at it <laughs> and then wondering if we were going to go blind afterwards. And that happened around the same time that Elvis died. So, there, you know, has some things sort of really stick in your memory. Um, so, in terms of birthdays and, and things like that, I don't actually know if we were celebrating birthdays when, when they were on the actual day or not. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm assuming my mum kept track of things like that. But most of the times we didn't know what day it was. No. <laughs> I mean, you you know, um, I guess when you think about it, humans um, would go by the seasons. You know, we would obviously know when the seasons are, but yeah, we didn't need to know what day it was. Really, it would have been fairly in tune with the seasons. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I knew that when the kookaburra started laughing, I had ten minutes to, till it was dark, <laughs> <laughs> so I better get home. <laughs> From the river. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. It w- it's a very long and convoluted story, but her... Her first husband who died in the car accident, his stepfather was a Holocaust survivor. His parents were Holocaust survivors, but his father uh, died and his mother remarried. So his – but both of his parents and the step-parent were Holocaust survivors. And um, he was a a high court judge in Germany before the war. So when he came to Australia, he couldn't – be a high court judge here or he couldn't work in law at all so he became a butcher but in the early 80s he he and his brothers there were three brothers they all became butchers but they all sued the German government for compensation because they couldn't um, practice in their profession and they were awarded um, compensation like an annual salary uh, so he had money to send my sister and I to boarding school and um, my sister was really keen to go to boarding school. I wasn't so much but I I was quite malleable I guess <laughs> and I read a lot of Enid Blyton. Um, but also I think my mum felt like she couldn't give us the education that, the, that boarding school maybe could 
So he paid for me to go for six years and my sister. It's a very complicated story, I know. My whole my whole family tree, if you like, is very complicated. Um, I guess I, I learnt uh, resilience by going to boarding school, but I don't think that the education that you get from a private school is better than I would have gotten at the local high. Um, hence, my kids went to the local high school. Um, so it kind of made me a bit anti um, that kind of, you know, education. Yeah. I wouldn't send my kids to boarding yeah. school. <laughs> yeah, I would not send my kids to boarding school, no. <laughs> yeah? Yes, yes, the orange people. Yes. Yes, it's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> A little bit scary to think that it wasn't anything like that where we were. but um, And that kind of happened in the 80s more than in the 70s. In the 70s, I think Osho had good intentions, but, you know, in those situations you you attract different people and I think some people were kind of saw opportunities um, and it got a bit carried away. Once it went to America, it kind of went a little bit more cultish, if you like. Yeah. <laughs> he ended up with quite a few Mercedes, didn't he? did, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, as a kid I actually listened to, we would actually listen to him on tape uh, with his teachings. Uh, he's got a really mesmerising voice for a start, probably hypnotised everybody. <laughs> but actually a lot of, I mean, a lot of his teachings are from, you know, uh, a lot of ancient teachings from India anyway. But um, some of his ideas are actually quite valid and, even more so today, yeah. So the um, media calling him uh, the sex guru? Uh, there was, was lots of sex. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I don't want to ask how you know that. <laughs> well, yeah, I saw it. Yeah. And you were younger than 11? Yeah. Well, I didn't. I wasn't involved. I just no, no. saw it <laughs> happening around me. Yeah, and, and you know when I when I went to, when I what became that kind of age, I was surprisingly naive about all of that kind of thing. Yeah, stored that away in some other part of your brain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? Nope. Well, thank you very much, Blade.